new Bible, one that looks like this, that should be around page 824, 825, something like that. Uh, Matthew chapter 19, that, the 19 is the, the big number there, and we'll begin in verse 1, which would be the little number. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these things, these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God is joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a, command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because if your hardness of heart, Moses, allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's begin our time in prayer. Lord, I pray that as we look to this text, Jesus is teaching us here. Your spirit has given us through Matthew and passed down through the ages for us to read. Lord, I pray that we would not be distracted by the little bits of our heart that are easily distracted by worldly things. Lord, give us ears to hear Christ's instruction this morning. Lord, give us your spirit that we may understand Christ's instruction. And Lord, through this, transform us, transform our marriages, transform our church, and let us be a people, Lord, who glorify you in all we do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we begin uh, getting into the text as we normally do, and if you're visiting, this is what we do. We go through verse by verse, wherever's next which is really easy for me as a pastor because I don't have to be very creative about some crazy series or anything like that. I just say, well, what did Jesus say this week? And so we do that. And what I have found is that I am growing in my understanding of the gospel through that, and I hope that you are as well. But before we begin getting into this verse by verse, I want to make a correction to your Bible, not to the verses. Don't worry, I don't want to correct the text. I want to correct the heading. In my Bible, above verse 19, I don't know if yours has this, but it says, 
teaching about divorce, or yours might say Jesus is teaching about divorce, or Jesus is Jesus and divorce, or something along those lines. Before we even start in this passage this morning, I want to say this. This teaching from Jesus is not about divorce. It's about marriage. Marriage is God's creation. He's creating one flesh from two people. And so kingdom marriages are to reflect what God has done. That's the the simple message that we're going to see from Jesus uh, this week. And so let's walk through our text this morning as we seek to understand what Jesus is teaching us about marriage. And just so you know, we're not going to finish the passage. We're not going to get all the way to verse 12 this week. Here's the plan. What we're going to do is this week, we're going to look primarily at what Jesus teaches us about marriage. And then next week, we'll look at the Pharisees' response to Jesus' teaching and the disciples' response to Jesus' teaching and what Jesus says about singleness. So we're only going to get really to verse 6 this week. So let's do it. In, in verses 1 and 2, which is sort of a, an introduction, Matthew tells us that Jesus, who had been up in Galilee all the way up to this point, he's begun his movement toward Jerusalem. So he's heading south. He's leaving Galilee, where most of his ministry has taken place, and he's headed south into Judea, and that will eventually take him to Jerusalem, which will take him to the cross, which is the point of the gospel. And Matthew says in verse 2 that along the way there, crowds are following him, large crowds. And he's healing them. Do you see that in verse 2? Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. He's still healing people, which we've seen over and over again. And if that, if that seems like, well, yeah, he's healing people. He's Jesus. That's what he does. This is actually a bigger deal than you might have noticed. Wherever Jesus is healing people, and we've seen this up to this point, Jesus is fulfilling the signs that the Old Testament said would prove the age of Messiah has arrived. Okay, so, so we've seen that happening, and this, this is important here because Matthew says he's doing this in Judea. We're, we're not supposed to ignore that geographical note here. Jesus has already proven himself to be the anointed king of the northern kingdom, Galilee, Samaria, even to where the Gentiles are. But now Matthew's showing us Jesus is the anointed king of the southern kingdom as well, Judea. And the last time in the Bible where the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom had one of their own as king was way, way, way back all the way under Solomon. Solomon, the son of David. All right, so Jesus then, this is just a, a tidbit for you, extra, it's an appetizer for us. Jesus is like Solomon, only he's much, much greater than Solomon. He told us he was much greater than Solomon. He's the promised son of David that would hold the throne forever, and he would rule over both kingdoms as one kingdom. So he is the Messiah. That's not a minor issue, all right? But the way that Matthew writes it for us, it's just this delicious appetizer. It's not the main course of the passage. So what we're going to do is just follow Matthew's lead 
as we go to get closer to the main point. So what's going on here in the passage? That's the introduction that Matthew gives us, what's happening in the passage. Let's look at verse 3. The Pharisees come up to Jesus to, look carefully at the text, to test him. Verse 3, to test him. Now don't miss that. What that tells us is that the Pharisees aren't coming to Jesus with this genuine question. They're not, they're not trying to learn more from Messiah. They're trying to trick him. That word test is only used three or four times in Matthew's gospel. The first time was way back in chapter 4 when the devil was testing Jesus in the wilderness. And really the, the idea behind that was that Satan was trying to trick Jesus. He was, he was trying to trick him into sinning. The only other times that we see this word used is when the Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus. Now, this shouldn't surprise us if we've been reading Matthew carefully. Those who oppose Jesus are said to be the brood of the serpent. Remember that? The offspring of the serpent. And so they're doing what the serpent does. They're doing the serpent's bidding here. They're doing the devil's bidding. But what are they testing? Are they trying to get Jesus to sin here? I don't think that's the main point necessarily. It's more that they want to make a fool out of him. They want to undermine his influence. He's got large crowds following him, Matthew's just told us that. He's influential. The Pharisees want to put a stop to that. So if they can present a situation where it appears... That Jesus, this wonderful teacher that everybody trusts, if they can present a situation where it appears that this teacher, Jesus, doesn't really know the word of God, maybe they believe they can undermine his credibility. And so this question concerning divorce that they ask him is a question that has been an ongoing debate even among Pharisees for ages it's not a resolved question, even amongst the smartest rabbis. So look at verse 3. Here's that tricky question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And where does this come from? It seems to come out of the blue, right? Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's coming down, and they just walk up to Jesus and ask him this random question. It's not really a random question. This comes from a debate that had been going on about Deuteronomy chapter 24. And in that passage, Moses, inspired by the Spirit, describes a scenario where a man is married to a woman, but he finds, as Moses puts it, some indecency in her. Some indecency. The point of the passage, if you read the, the rest of it in, in Deuteronomy 24, is that if that happens... And if he divorces her, and if she marries someone else, and if that person divorces her, then the first husband can't remarry her. That's the point. But the debate surrounding the passage ignores the point of the passage and zeroes, on, on that, zeroes in on that question of, well, what does Moses mean by some indecency? Because their thinking is this. If Moses says that some indecency led to this man divorcing his wife, then Moses must be teaching that some divorces are 
permissible, particularly when some indecency has occurred. And then the theory amongst them is that if you can decipher what some indecency means, then you can determine the grounds for legitimate divorce. And then there are basically two sides to this debate. So that's the debate, and they've, they've kind of grouped themselves uh, among the, the scholarly Jews into two groups, a, a more permissive group and a more restrictive group. Some Pharisees, the more permissive ones, were teaching that the definition of indecency was extremely broad. Like the man decides he's not attracted to his wife anymore, or he doesn't like her cooking, or he doesn't like her accent. If there's just anything, any reason at all that he doesn't like her, then he has found an indecency in her, and he can divorce her. That's the more permissive group. And then on the other side, you have this more restrictive group. They have a narrower view of the word indecency. Their thought was that it Indecency must mean something immoral, particularly something sexually immoral has taken place. And so they say only in those cases was divorce permissible. Either way, when they come to Jesus with this question, they're convinced that between these two groups, they have the market cornered on biblical faithfulness and the theology of divorce. And they believe because of some things that they've heard about what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you remember that from from Matthew chapter 5. They believe that this Jesus is outside of orthodoxy. He's outside of what the Jews teach about Deuteronomy 24. And so they're going to prove to everybody watching that this teacher doesn't really know the Bible. Well, what's Jesus' response? They've got him cornered. At least they think he did. They do. And Jesus responds, look at verses 4 through 6. He answered, have you not read, this is funny, you guys not read Genesis? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now, I just want you to pause. You see what he's doing? He's doing the same thing he did in the wilderness testing. He's referring back to Scripture. He's holding the Word of God as the highest authority. So let's keep going. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus isn't teaching about divorce here, is he? He's teaching about Marriage. Think about it. Think about it this way. If you're not convinced, a little league baseball player and his teammates are arguing in the dugout about the dropped third strike rule. Okay, you know that rule. If first base is empty, or if there are two outs and the catcher drops the third strike, then the catcher needs to treat the batter as a runner. It's a weird rule. That's baseball, and in baseball, there's a rule for everything. So now, now imagine, coach walks into the dugout, the kids are kind of murmuring and arguing together, and they look up to him and they say, hey coach, when should the catcher drop the third strike? You kind of 
looks at him funny. He says, catch the ball, knuckleheads. Catch the ball. We wouldn't then say, well, that coach was teaching them about when the dropping of the third strike is advisable. He's teaching about how the game is designed to be played, isn't he? And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's teaching us what marriage is meant for, what it was designed for. So what we're going to do with the rest of our time this morning is just examine really closely what Jesus is teaching us about marriage here. And there are three truths I want us to see out of Jesus' teaching. Here's the first one. Marriage is a part of God's plan. All right, so that's number one. Marriage is a part of God's plan. Number two, marriage is two becoming one by the decree of God. And number three, marriage was created by God to be permanent in this life. So let's look at these one by one. First one, marriage is a part of God's plan. Look at verse four. Have you not heard, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning created them male and female? And then verse five, he said, therefore, and, and, and the therefore argument here is linked to the from the beginning argument. Because God from the very beginning made men and women God's therefore is that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. You see that package, that argument? In other words, here, here, put it more simply, the very reason that God created us male and female is so that he could bring male and female together in marriage. That's why there are male and female. That's what Jesus is teaching us. Turn, turn back to Genesis 1, and I want us to see carefully how this is part of God's plan. We want to see why this is God's plan. Genesis 1.26. Jesus is teaching from Genesis 1.27 and from Genesis 2. And so he understands that they know those passages really clearly. I'm not going to make that assumption. And so we're going to look at those passages carefully. Genesis chapter 1, it's the very beginning. This is the first book of your Bible. Chapter 1, verse 26. And this is God's creation of humankind. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God's just created all of these other things and now he's going to create mankind to have dominion over these other things and he's going to do that in his image. So why did God make humanity in his image? Humanity was created to rule over creation as his representatives. That's what the, what the image there even means. Now, look at verse 27. This will tell us the how. How is God doing this? Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female he created them. So there it is, male and female. Male and female coming together in marriage is the means through which the rule over creation would happen. And to increase, 
that rule, to increase that God-glorifying, image-bearing rule over the rest of creation, God blesses the male and female so that it will bring forth, this, this marriage will bring forth new image bearers. It's following the logic, look at verse 28. And God blessed them, the male and the female, who are together in marriage. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, so look, in Genesis 1, God created humanity and marriage in one command, and he did it expressly for the purpose of multiplying the image of God across the earth. Therefore, Genesis 2. This is the, the argument Jesus is making. That's the knowledge we have from Genesis 1, revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, speaking through Moses, and the therefore is what we see in Genesis 2. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. In other words, because God created man and woman for this reason, the man shall seek out a wife and get married. You following it? It's kind of simple, but, but we don't think of marriage in the way that Jesus is thinking about marriage. And, and, and I, I want to say this as an aside. If you're single, there is a place for singleness in the new creation. In this argument here, it doesn't seem like there is. But we'll see next week that Jesus clearly has a place for singleness. So singles, hold tight. We'll get to you. But, but the clear teaching here, from Matthew 19, Jesus' exegesis of, of Genesis 1 and 2 is that marriage is a part of the creation order. And so it should be clear that God has designed it to accomplish his purposes. Mar marriage was created, designed by God to spread his glory, his image throughout all of creation. And being God's design... What does marriage look like? And that's where we get truth number two, our second propositional truth. Marriage is two people, male and female, becoming one flesh by the decree of God. So marriage is a one flesh union spoken into existence by God. Look again at verses four and five, back to Matthew 19. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Who is he there? God. God created them and said, don't miss that, and said at the beginning of verse five, God said this, God spoke marriage into existence. He said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, so God decreed it. God decreed that the two shall become one, and what happened? It happened. God said, let there be light, and what happened? There was light. God said, let there be marriage, and what happens? There's marriage. He spoke the one flesh union marriage into existence. Now, what does that mean, one flesh union? It's kind of bible -y language, isn't it? If you've if you've been to a Christian wedding, you've heard this. If you've grown up in the church, you might have heard this. If you're new to this, this just sounds weird. 
So, so what, what does this mean, two becoming one flesh? Well, certainly there's a physical aspect to this. Think of, think of the flight attendant on an airplane holding up the buckle, right? And, and the receiver and pressing them together as a demonstration, two pieces that are useless on their own when they come together, that their design is, is, is accomplished. So, so without a doubt, there's something really physical involved here that, that Jesus is showing us, but it's deeper than that. Pro- procreation in the animal world is never described as a one flesh union anywhere in the Bible. Only human marriage is described this way. There's something about the, the, the way that God has created human marriage, the only real marriage there is, that, that can be described as one flesh union. So why is that? What's going on here? Well, well back in Genesis 2 that Sarah read for us, the woman is taken from where? From the man's side. From his flesh. And then God presents the woman to the man. The man recognizes immediately, oh, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And he sings a a song about it, the first song ever. He he knows deep down in a very real sense that they were made from each other for each other. They were cut from the same cloth, as we might say today. Marriage is the bringing together together of what God created for the purpose of bringing together. So so when God created humanity, he did not create one person from dust and then another from the dust and then another from the dust and, and so on all over the earth so that he could spread his image and his glory. And he could have done that. God could very well have populated the earth in that way. There's nothing that would have prevented him from that. And if he had, all of those people could have provided companionship to one another in some way. They could have been friends. They could have helped one another in the work of spreading the glory of God throughout creation. They could have ruled over the animal kingdoms in that way. But they'd all be ontologically separate from one another, to use a philosophy word. They would be at the very essence of who they are, separate from one another. And not united in one flesh, because they never were from the same flesh. That that drawing from the man, drawing the woman from the man, and then presenting her to, to, to Adam, that is key to understanding the one flesh union. Absolutely essential. From one to two, and then reunited as one. The man becomes whole when he's united to the woman. That's God's design for marriage. And Jesus says, that was the case then, in Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And and notice, God said that in Genesis 2 about a man who didn't have a father and mother. Which is to say, it marriage, that first marriage was created as an ordinance or uh, as a pattern that all marriages after it would follow. So it was the case then for the first man and woman, and it's still the case now. 
That's what marriage is. It's two complementary parts, male and female, created for one another, coming together as one. They physically become one. They emotionally become one. They spiritually become one. They are, in the, in the great and hidden things of God, a more complete whole, a more complete and perfect one than Adam alone was when the rib was still in his body. Think about that for a minute. There is a greater, more God-glorifying oneness in the marriage of Adam and his wife than there was when Adam was alone. That's what marriage is as declared by God. So that's truth number two that Jesus is teaching us. Now, what about the third? Here's number three. Marriage was created by God to be permanent in this life. Why must it be permanent? Well, this is Jesus' argument. Listen, if marriage is a part of God's creation design, and Jesus says it is, according to Genesis 1, and, and if marriage is God decreeing, if he's speaking it into existence, two becoming one, and Jesus says that's what's happening, according to Genesis 2, and, and if both of these realities are God-ordained, and they are, and we can't undo it. Look, look at Jesus' conclusion in verse 6. This is exactly what he's saying. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God is joined together, let not man separate. Jesus is teaching us that man, humanity, we don't have the right. Regardless of the circumstances, to undo something God has made. God has made marriage for his purposes, for his glory, and man's obligation is to display God's glory in marriage. We are, we are to display the oneness that God has created from two in all that we do in marriage. So, so when the Pharisees ask Jesus, Jesus, when is it lawful to get a divorce? Jesus is saying, wrong question, wrong question. The right and biblical response to what we see in Genesis is not, when is it okay to break this? I mean, imagine, you know, you've given this, a child a wonderful gift. And the first question they ask you, when do I get to break this? Under what circumstances is it okay to break this gift? The, the right response, the only question we can possibly ask in response to what God has given us in marriage is this. How can we honor the institution of marriage? That's what the Pharisees should have been asking. That's what we should always be asking. And so before we get to anywhere else in this passage, and we'll talk more about divorce next week. But I want us to be crystal clear on what Jesus is teaching here. That's why we're going so slow. I want us to not be at all distracted by what happens later in this passage. I want us to just zero in, zoom in on what Jesus is teaching us here. I want us to understand without a, bat, without a doubt 
that Jesus is lifting high the institution of marriage. And I want us to ask, how can we honor that as Christians? How can we as a church, as Del Cerro Baptist, point one another and point the world to the glory of God as he has shown it in marriage? And believe it or not, this is an even more important question for us as Christians than it was for them, for the Pharisees, for Jews. As Christians, we have been given more insight into God's design than even Moses had. Think about that. Moses met with God. We have been given more insight into God's design than what God gave to Moses. Should turn over to Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians 5, the, the Apostle Paul, I'm just while you're turning there, the, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Ephesian church. He's giving instruction to the church on, on how their marriages should be modeled. Right? So he's told them what Christ has done for them. He's told them who they are to be together as the body of Christ, as a church, and then he goes into their homes. Says, this is what your homes should like, look like. This, this is what your marriages should look like. The wife is to submit to her husband in all things as the church submits to Jesus, our king. And the husband is to love his wife as Jesus, our king, loved the church and died for her. And then he tells us why. And this is the part I want to show you. Why should our marriages look like that? Because that's hard. Look at verse 28, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28. Look at the buildup here. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh. Now think one flesh union there. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now look at this. This is the new revelation that Moses didn't have, but that the Holy Spirit has given us. Verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ in the church. What refers to Christ in the church? That one flesh union designed by God that Jesus taught us about. Paul, Paul says that union... The hidden purpose in that from the very beginning was to display the union between Christ and the church. Christ and the church are the true one flesh union. So, so as, as born again new creations, we have been newly created from Christ and for Christ. Like the new bride for the new Adam. And being united to Christ, we are inseparable from Christ. So, so think back to those three truths that we looked at, what Jesus taught us. Marriage is a part of God's plan. Marriage is two becoming one by the decree of God. Marriage was created by God to be permanent. And each of these is true, more true, of Christ and the church. Christ's redemption of the church from eternity past was always the plan of God. The union of Christ and the church 
Two becoming one, that is the gospel reality decreed by God. And three, the marriage between Christ and the church is permanent. Permanent. Forever. Way more permanent than our earthly marriages could ever hope to be. Christ's marriage to the church is forever. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And what the Spirit is revealing to us through Paul's teaching is that our marriages then are to reflect that reality. When when we as Christians observe our own marriage or marriages of others in the church, we are to be reminded, reminded in those marriages of the display of the one flesh union that points us to our relationship to Christ. So we should see oneness. We should see permanence. We should see inseparability. We should see something created by God as a part of his glorious plan of redemption. That's what we're to see in Christian marriages. So with that in mind, just as an added incentive, we have this massive, massive motivation to honor marriage, don't we? So how do we do that? How does a church honor marriage? Well, we're just going to look at three ways. This is our conclusion. This is our application for this morning. Three ways that we can honor marriage as a church. And here's the first. We can celebrate marriage. We're going to go from easiest to hardest, okay? So the first one is we can celebrate marriage, especially Christian marriage. When a Christian couple gets married, it is something to celebrate. God's creation order is being echoed from long, 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 long ago into the here and now. And what's more, the gospel is being repeated and it's being proclaimed in picture form for us. Two people are becoming one, showing us Christ and the church becoming one. A new Christian family is being created. There's so much to celebrate in marriage. So there's no reason why we shouldn't. So, so when, when a Christian couple you know is getting married, I'm just going to say this bluntly, shower them with gifts, okay? Shower, good gifts. Good gifts. Extravagant gifts. Rich gifts, okay? Let them know how happy you are for them because you're being reminded of the gospel. That should always make you happy. So, so, so if there isn't a global pandemic and you can attend the wedding, Go to the wedding, okay? Even if you're not invited. Embarrass them with a standing room only wedding, okay? Don't go to the reception, though. The second thing we can do to honor marriage, actually, I'm going to keep going, because there's more, there's more to this than weddings, isn't there? This is about marriages. We can celebrate marriages. Wedding anniversaries to us should be more important than birthdays. So when you catch wind of an anniversary, celebrate it. Congratulate the couple. Even if it's somebody you don't even know, write them a card, give them a call, give them a hug. I don't even care about COVID. Give them a hug, okay? (laughs) Give them a hug. Congratulate them. Praise God. And Julia, make a note. Let's start putting anniversaries in the newsletter, all right? Let's do that, okay? So the second thing, now we'll go to the second thing. So we got weddings and anniversaries, and we're going to celebrate those. Now, the second thing that we can do as a church to honor marriage is to pray for marriages. 
All right, let's pray for our marriages. And we're going to talk more about this next week, about the rest of our passage. Because after Genesis 2, something bad happens. Something that makes marriage hard. Because of sin, the inseparable one flesh union has an irreparable fracture in it. And as long as we're in this world, the oneness of marriage is going to need a constant supply of repentance and forgiveness in order to survive. And friends, repentance and forgiveness are not as easy as they sound. We just saw two sermons in a row about that from Matthew chapter 18. These things are hard. Repentance and forgiveness are hard, really hard, especially and you all know this, especially when you know you're right. But far more important than your perceived rightness is your marriage's oneness. And so to, to repair the wrongness that your rightness brought to your marriage's oneness, you need repentance and forgiveness. And those things don't come naturally at all. Those things come from the Spirit. And so every marriage in this room needs more spirit-empowered repentance and forgiveness. So every marriage in this room needs lots and lots of prayer. So honor marriage by praying for the marriages in our church. That simple? Number three, hard one. I told you it got harder. The third way that we can honor the institution of marriage is through our obedience to God in marriage. So, so God created marriage so that his glory would be made known through the multiplication of image bearers. Remember back Genesis 1? That's why marriage exists. God's multiplying image bearers. So marriages multiply image bearers. And the way we do that now is not the same as it always was. The way we do that now as kingdom citizens in the new creation, in the heavenly kingdom, is through making disciples of Christ. That means we communicate the gospel to those who are outside of the kingdom and call them in. We tell them about the greatness of King Jesus. We tell them about the wonders of what King Jesus has done for them on the cross. We tell them about his resurrection. And we teach them to live in obedience to King Jesus. We baptize them into the kingdom. Making disciples is the new command to be fruitful and multiply. The, the new command fulfills the old. But that doesn't mean we as Christians are to stop raising children. Okay? One of the ways that we can make disciples is through raising children as disciples of Jesus. So whether we're adopting kids into our homes and making disciples of them, or we are observing the old-fashioned approach that never gets old, Christians are far better suited for raising children as disciples of King Jesus than anyone else in the world. Than anyone else in the world. And I just wanted, just as an aside, Christian parents... If you are not discipling your children, if you're not raising them as disciples of Jesus, they're being raised as disciples of the world. 
You have to understand that. When, when you assume, oh, my child is safe, I've showed them the way at VBS or Sunday school or whatever it is, and now I'm going to let the public school system raise them the rest of the way. And, and Josh, on, now Josh does a good job. He's not going to make a worldly disciple. But here, here you go. You've got one hour with Josh, youth pastor, Friday night, and how many hours with the public school system? Or even a private school system. Or anything. Anything that's not from Scripture. They're making disciples, worldly disciples. They're turning your children. Their goal is to turn your child away from Jesus Christ. That's their goal. And so you've got to assume that if that's their goal, then they're going to do whatever they can to accomplish that goal. So don't, don't be naive. You have got to fight. And I mean just tooth and nail, fight to make disciples of your children. Never stop. Never stop. Raise your children as disciples of Christ. Adopt other people's kids and raise them as disciples of Christ. Teach your grandkids and your nieces and your nephews whenever and wherever you get the chance to be disciples of Christ. That's something really important because that's what God has created marriage for. Our marriages are designed from the very beginning to be disciple-making factories. So if we're to honor God's design, well, make disciples, okay? So in, in, in making disciples, be careful. If you're teaching others to observe all that Christ commanded, that's what making disciples is, be careful to observe all Christ commanded in your marriage, especially in your marriage. Husbands, means your, your understanding is that you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, as the Spirit teaches us in Ephesians. And that's an entire sermon in itself, just that. You're also, as Peter tells us, inspired by the Spirit, you're to live with your wives in an understanding way and show her honor. Okay? Now, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, as the Spirit tells us in Ephesians, and as the Spirit says in 1 Peter, you are to let your adorning, what makes you beautiful? Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. That's a, those are our models for Christian marriage, for how we honor God in our marriage and how we honor marriage in the church. If we are to honor marriage in the church, we are to live in obedience to how Christ teaches us that our marriages display his glory. See how that all fits together? Next week, we'll get to the rest of this passage. I would recommend, not just recommend, I would instruct you to read it. Read it and, and prepare your heart for what's coming and prepare in such a way that you have this foundation that Jesus has given us. This foundation is unshakable. It's really important. We can't get the rest of this passage without what we saw today. So read it again, meditate on it, pray, 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 and pray for Christian marriages and pray for our church's marriages. Celebrate, especially 
those marriages that have been going on for a long time. Because that's a reason to celebrate. Well, this is the word of God, and I want to thank the Lord right now for, for revealing it to us. Father in heaven, we are so grateful, so humbled to see what, what you have instructed us, what you have given us, what you've created for us. Lord, I pray that our marriages would be honoring to you. I pray that, that right now for those of us who, who have heard these things and, and who realize their, their marriages don't look like this. They haven't thought about marriage in the way that you've created it. And so they're feeling just guilty or ashamed. Lord, would you set them at ease by your Spirit's power? Remind us of Christ's work for us. Christ's sacrificial work on the cross for his church as greater than what we could accomplish in marriage by far. Remind us of our weakness. Remind us of our dependence on Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those who don't know Jesus Christ, and for all of this has just been a foreign language to them this morning, Lord, I pray that our church would be a witness to them. Pray that our singles would be a witness to them, that our marriages would be a witness to them, that, that those who have who've had broken marriages but have known the forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus, that they would be a witness to these people who don't know Jesus and who don't know the glory of Christ's love for us. Lord, let our church just be proclaimers of Christ's love for us and of the forgiveness that we have in him. In Jesus' name, amen.